You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning once again. What an awesome, it's been an awesome morning here. Now, I, I, I'm like, after these songs and watching the Cutcliffs get baptized and our foster family, it's like, if I can't preach after that, I need to find new work. You know what I mean? That's what I was, that's what I was thinking before I came up here. Uh, so uh, what, what an awesome day. Just really thankful to be a pastor of this church and a part of this people uh, that God has brought together uh, as City Church. And uh, it just we've been in this series about the church and politics. I think it's really important we talk about it. This is our last week of the series. I wrote this sermon before the election uh, because the scriptures, and our mission does not change based on results. It doesn't. Uh, so I wanted to preach the exact same message no matter who won or who we're still thinking is going to win if something else happens or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and I wanted to be faithful to the text and not let culture dictate what we're going to talk about or our American society or our political system, but rather the word of God. Uh, so I hope that can be sufficient for all of us as we talk about some important things today. This is from Revelation chapter 11. This is future speaking here. And we're told that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the almighty who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Yes, Jesus reigns right now, but one day the realization of his reign and his rule will be forever and ever over every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. The United States of America is a footnote in history compared to the reign and rule of Christ for all time, and I'm very thankful for that. Because here's the reality, politics matters, definitely. Policies matter, presidents matter, vice presidents matter. But let us never forget that some things matter much, much eternally more. Because Republicans and Democrats will come and go, but Christ's reign is guaranteed and secure. See, the real government of the universe, the final reality, which in the end confronts every human being, is the reign of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So the question we have to ask, and regardless of who the next president of the United States is, as last night, Biden and and Harris had their kind of, what do you want to call it, kind of their official celebration rally. The question is, and it'd been the exact same question if the ticket would have been the other way around, and I understand there's still things that are being dealt with behind the scenes that I have no control over, no power over, and what I think actually is irrelevant about those things. The question for Christians, regardless, is the question, where from here? Like in this intense political environment where we have found ourselves, like what's next? Like we the church, as this series is called. Like, like what does this mean for us going forward? Because it's not going away anytime soon. It's just become more and more visible and more and more evident of the worship of this thing we call politics. Where I've seen people who I've never heard say a word about Jesus on social media post their political opinions daily, hourly, seemingly unashamed of their favorite politician, but pretty quiet about the one they claim to be their Lord and Savior. Or people who are more fired up about who's at a rally for a candidate than actually who's at church on a Sunday morning. 
This is not new. Uh, in my lifetime, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 40 in like two weeks, but uh, besides that, uh, so I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm, I'm getting there. So I at least have a little memory of elections past. Started seeing a lot of divisiveness. Just a quick little history lesson. Uh, again, divisiveness is not new. Hostility is not new. It's just more visible because of social media and all the news. And we started seeing a lot of it during the Iraq war under President Bush. We started really seeing kind of a divided people. People started to get a little more hostile uh, in terms of my, in my lifetime. I know hostility dates all the way back to the beginning of politics. Actually, back to the beginning of people. Uh, there was hostility. goes all the way through. Uh, but then we saw the next administration under Obama really kind of mainstream identity politics. That almost became kind of a tactic and, and an action. And then you get to the last administration of just a very divisive figure in general uh, that would kind of be the opposite of what we normally would call being presidential, you know, which brings about you know, even more, more angst and, and more intensity. But all of that for us as Christians should be its own separate category because how the world thinks is not the greatest concern for us. What God says and how Christians act should be the greatest concern for us. So what I want to do in this last week of the series is just do a little Bible study with us today. From Colossians chapter 3, to answer the question, where do we go from here? And the answer is where we always should have been, which is God's word. Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writing to Christians, to the church. Here's what he said to them, so if you have been raised with Christ... That's what happens when you're a Christian. You were dead in your sins, the Bible tells us, and you've been raised to a new life in Christ Jesus. But that imagery is, is the Easter imagery. Jesus was rose from the grave in the same way spiritually we are raised with him. We are brought to a new life, and that's great for all of us who needed a second chance, who needed a new life, that Jesus gives it to us. We're raised with Christ. Because of that, seek the things above where Christ is seated at, seated at the right hand of God. Because I've been raised with Jesus, because he has made me new, he has made me a new person, I want my focus, I want my attention, I want to seek now where he is. I want to seek the things of God where Christ is. And he says, set your minds on things above, verse 2. What's the alternative of that? Not on earthly things. Now, Paul, is, 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 he's not saying that we should be careless about earthly things. This same writer spends scripture, the inspired word of God, talking about government and how we should relate to kings and to, and to rulers. And he talks about all kinds of earthly issues. He's just saying that is nowhere near our ultimate focus. That is nowhere near we ultimately seek things or in the temporary things of this world. And that imagery, he's pointing them to set their minds on things above. They've been raised with Christ, that's present, but the realization of it is also future. So he's contrasting the two things. If you look towards what is ahead, towards what God has promised for you forever, or you focus so much of your energy on things that are temporary, and we wonder why it brings about anxiety and it brings about hostility, well, because we were never designed to focus on those things as ultimate to begin with. And he tells us our own story. He reminds the Christians of their story. Every Christian has a story, and it can be all different kinds. Some people have really dramatic testimonies, like you were in recovery, and you, you know, met Jesus, and, and God's freed you from addiction. You know, other people may be, uh, I know people who came out of a life of atheism, and God revealed himself to them, and, and they became believers. Uh, I, I know other people who were freed from, you know, different issues of, of, of you know, um, sexual immorality, all kinds of things. And there's people who kind of have what they would call a boring testimony. 
which you feel like you wouldn't really have a story to share because you just have you know, been a Christian and given your life to Jesus as long ago as you could really remember. And you've been, of course, you're not perfect, you're a human being, but you've been really following Jesus your whole life. Let me tell you something. Yes, we all have different paths in terms of maybe different maps that got us there, but there's only one road. And it's dead people coming alive in Jesus Christ. So there's no such thing as a boring testimony because you used to be this and now you've been raised with Christ. You've died to your old self. Your life is now hidden, the text tells us, with Christ in God. You're in Christ now. There's a oneness image. He says, when Christ who is your life, and I'm like, wow, talk about goals. I'd love to be able to say one day that Christ is my life. I don't think I'm there yet. I think it's kind of a lifelong journey, but that's what he's calling us to. That's, that's the assumption. When Christ appears, and he will also appear with him in glory. Here's that future idea again. Like we're looking to something else beyond what this world has to offer. Then he says, therefore. I had a seminary professor who used to say, anytime you see the word in the Bible, therefore, you need to ask the question, what's it there for? That was deep for you this morning. Uh, what's it there for? Well, here's what it's there for. He's just spent four verses telling us, actually the whole book of Colossians, who we are, what God has done for us, what is awaiting for us, the future that is waiting for us in Christ. And he says, therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, because you're not focused on earthly things, because your life is now Christ, you're hidden with Christ in God, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death who you used to be, and then he names things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. And he says, that's idolatry. That's not raised with Christ. That's not seeking the things that are above. It's idolatry, the worship of something else other than God. I read this week someone say that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. I was saying, God, I don't want to worship you. I want to worship other things instead. Maybe it's myself, the things of this world, my way, being right, my situation. Like all those things take precedent over you is what idolatry is. It's basically saying, God, no thanks. I don't want you. I want your stuff instead. And then he says, hey, verse six, look, guys, because of these, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Be not mistaken. God will punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin and just shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, it's no big deal. I know you're a great guy. I know that you're sincere. I know that you just have a generic belief in God and try to be a good person, whatever it might be. He says, be not mistaken. God is going to punish sin. If he left sin unpunished and just shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, Billy's got a great heart. I know him better than that. Then he would cease to be the holy God that he is. God will punish sin because of sin, not because God's mean, because of sin, idolatry against him, we're told the wrath of God is coming upon those people. Then he gives some really good news in verse seven. And you once walked in these things and you were living in them. That's past tense. As in this doesn't apply to you. Like Christian, this does not apply to you. The, the punishment of your sin is no longer hanging over your head if you're a Christian. Why? Because Jesus was punished in your place. That's why we call it the gospel. It's good news. The good news of what Jesus came to do for sinners. 
So I need to shrink down in my seat when I see words like wrath of God because that doesn't apply to me anymore. Why? Because I've been raised with Christ. So if you're doing that, he's saying, why are you reverting back to the ways of this world? Why are you reverting back to who you used to be? He said, you were once walking in these things and you were living in them. As you didn't just make a mistake once or twice, you were actually living in sin. He says, but now, because of who you are, put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, a little higher up on those verses where he talks about sexual morality, impurity, lust, greed, we can go, oh yeah, those things are really bad. Like We need to overcome those things by God's grace, but it's easy to still let what some people call acceptable sins, not acceptable in God's eyes, but kind of acceptable in sort of our little world we function in, you know, things like slander and malice. I mean, look around our political culture. I mean, how many times are people just getting slandered? Brothers and sisters, even in Christ, who are our family, who we might not know because there are national figures who get absolutely destroyed on social media by folks simply because they have a different political persuasion. I mean, think about how many people share an article about someone where they just read the headline, didn't even read the article, just to kind of get some kind of, see, I told you, or just some kind of point, and it's usually something that's probably not even true or exaggerated. And we think kind of the end justifies the means, so it's as if we don't care. And for the Christian, the end very rarely, if ever, actually justifies the means. God cares about all of it. He says, since you have put off the old self, that's the point here. Like you're not of this world anymore. And he says, and not just that you put off your old self, but also its practices. So positionally with God, spiritually, our old self is gone. We've been raised with Christ. But now functionally, he's calling us to also take off the old self. So spiritually, old self is gone. I mean, it's like donated, gone. It's even more than that. It's been like burned. It's, it's crucified. Like it, it is no longer, God does not count your history against you. He counted it against Christ, who had a perfect history. But the effects of our fallen selves, living in a fallen world still lingers functionally. So we have to regularly put that to death. Put aside those practices. He goes, but here's what you've done. You put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. The knowledge we've been filled with our whole lives, even if you come from great families and great backgrounds that were very helpful for you, is still ultimately the knowledge of this world if it's apart from God. So now as a Christian, you're being renewed in this new knowledge that has a different lens you see the world through. And it's through the reality that you've been raised with Christ. And I think verse 11 may be some of the most important verses for our context and our culture and our church right now. In Christ, he says, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now he's talking to a group of people who actually are Greek and Jew, and some who are circumcised, some who are not circumcised, some who are slaves, some who are free. And they're going, what are you talking about that there, there is not that? I am that. Like, well, what are you referring to here? 
Well, yeah, that could be your worldly identity. But that is not how God sees you. Because God has made a people for himself. He doesn't have the same categories that we have. Yes, those people are incredibly diverse and unique and look different and even think different on certain matters and talk different, but we are a people that God has put together. So it's like, oh, oh you're, well, I, I'm Greek. It's like, okay, yes, you're Greek. I, I know you're Greek, but in Christ, you know what you are? You were raised with him. You were part of his family. Well, well no, I, I'm Jew. Well, I, I know you're Jew. But before you're a Jew, if you're a Christian, you were in Christ. That's how God sees you. So guess what? The Greek person, and this is like hitting close to home in their culture, because Greeks and Jews did not get along. Circumcised and uncircumcised did not get along. So here, all these people are coming to faith in Jesus from different backgrounds, from different sides of the aisle. And he's saying, guess what? You're more related, Jew, to the Greek person who knows Jesus than the Jewish person who doesn't. Because God's wrecking all of our categories. Because we've been raised with Christ. Well, I'm circumcised. It's like, okay, I believe you. I'm not from Missouri. Don't show me, okay? None of that. I'm circumcised. Okay, you might be, but in Christ, you know what you are? You are his. He says, Christ is all and in all. And then we come back to the word therefore. Because of that, and then he adds to it, as, cho- as God's chosen ones, that God has a people he has chosen for himself. And I even go back, actually, back to verse 11, I want to clarify something. He talks about slave and free. In no way, shape, or form is Paul condoning slavery. Check, we back, okay. In no way, shape, or form is Paul condoning slavery. He's not encouraging slavery. He's looking to someone who would be the category of a slave and saying, you know what? I'm not saying the situation is as it should be. I'm not even saying that you are being treated justly. I'm saying in Christ, he, God does not see you that way first. He sees you as a child of his before anything else. That's your ultimate identity. He says, guess what? You're, you're God's chosen ones. God has always had a people for himself that he has chosen. That's not new. You go from Abraham in the Old Testament to Israel to the church today. God has always had a people for himself. He says it's God's chosen ones. Those are these people who are Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian. These are God's chosen people together. He says holy, that's who God's making you and dearly loved by God. You're not dearly loved by your favorite politician. You're not. Doesn't mean they can't be loving people, I'm not saying that, but our idols don't love us back. In Christ, God says you're dearly loved. Because of that, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In verse 13, he says, bearing with one another. Whoa, that's a lost art. You wouldn't have to talk about bearing with one another unless there were issues that were causing them to not be able to bear with one another very well. So what happens in the church today if people aren't burying together very well? They're out of here, right? Somebody makes you mad, offends you, does something you don't like. Well, that's our world. You break the relationship. You kind of just sort of erase that person from your life. You disconnect. You don't speak to them anymore, whatever it might be. And he's going, no, no, let's bear with one another. Not with the world, but as Christians, let's bear. We have differences. We're going to have differences that aren't found in here. And as I said last week, in those differences, we need to give each other grace and space. Grace and space to disagree on non-matters of Scripture. 
There's going to be people in this church that have different opinions on gun control, and a different opinion on tax policy, and different opinion on education reform. And we can just keep going down the list of things that aren't laid out in the Bible clearly. And their answer is we have to give each other and bear with one another grace and space on those issues or there's no future for what we're trying to do. He says, if anyone has, a, he says, then forgiving one another, not randomly. Notice that none of the things he's talking about in this text are random. They're not rules for the sake of rules. They all are a response to something. He says we should forgive one another if you have a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So God's not asking you to do anything crazy. He's saying, hey, I've forgiven you. Look how you've sinned against me. So you can't forgive another human being? How rough can life be if we still harbor hatred in our heart, unforgiveness in our heart? God wants us to look to his forgiveness of us and then give it to other people. He goes, you're also to forgive. He goes, but above all, put on love. And not this random love is love, generic definition of love, but one that's found in Christ. He goes, this is the perfect bond of unity. One that's understood by who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule over your hearts and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell, not just to be read or sit on a shelf, but to dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Why do we sing on Sundays? It's not to fill some time the first 20 minutes. It's we come together to sing the praises of God, to be people of gratitude who make known to God through our voices, through our instruments, corporately together as a congregation, the greatness of his name, and remind one another through the songs of what God has done for us. There's not a moment wasted during our sermons, during our services, our songs, our prayers. It's all done in gratitude to our Lord. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That that now is what we are supposed to be about. Because when God draws us out of the world, we become now members of Christ's body. There's only one body of Christ, and it's global, it's universal, it's expressed how God has designed it, which is locally through congregations, through actual local churches, but there's one body of Christ. And we have to realize that there's more to the division going on right now than simply having different positions or convictions about important issues. John Yates, a retired Anglican rector in Washington, D.C. is actually one of my mentors. I was his intern uh, in Washington, D.C. and got to go live up there and, and spend a lot of time with him. He wrote a letter to pastors of all denominations uh, last week via the Gospel Coalition website, which is a really great, helpful resource and website uh, just for theology and Christian living and things like that. And he wanted to point out just the magnitude of the moment right now for the church in our country and help us understand that the divisions we have are not simply because we have different opinions on important matters, but there is an enemy who is out there trying to divide the church. It's important to know that Satan is not an allegory or some kind of metaphor in the Bible. Satan is an actual real being. Jesus actually acknowledged the devil as a real being. So either you think Jesus is crazy or that he was lying, 
or that the devil actually is real. It's important we know that. It's a real, actual being that Jesus himself addressed and acknowledged as real. Here's what we're told about this enemy in the scriptures. Ephesians 6, when the day of evil comes, stand your guard against the divider. 1 Peter 5, 8, he's on the prowl looking for people to devour, so resist him. There is no truth in whatever he is involved in, John chapter 8, verse 44. He is the thief who comes to destroy, John 10, 10. He is the inspirer of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 2. He holds people in bondage, Luke 13, 16. He shakes people till they come apart at the seams. Luke twenty two thirty one. hardly an allegory, hardly some symbol for evil. He's the divider, the devourer, the deceiver, the destroyer, the inspirer of disobedience, the invisible evil power who's manipulating situations all the time, twisting truths and raising the temperature of our emotions to be away from seeking the things above and instead minding ourselves and the things of this world that'll rip the church apart if we let it. Of course, we are the ultimate problem. It's an us problem. As Yates writes, our short-sightedness and judgmentalism and self-righteousness is the problem. But we can forget, we cannot forget that behind it all is Satan and his persistent attacks to divide the church. He hates Jesus. He hates the gospel. And he hates God's people. And he hates our mission. When we forget that, we're going to wind up instead blaming others our entire days and moods. I mean, I remember watching election returns in 2016, and you'd have thought Jesus came back by the celebrations. I watched election returns just last night, and you would think Jesus came back by all the celebrations. I'll never forget being at a denominational meeting one time, and we brought up missionaries on stage, and people clapped and you know showed their support from them. We brought a politician up on stage to say a prayer. The politician got a standing ovation. Louder than the missionaries. I don't think people meant any harm by it. I just don't think we realize what affects us more. What affects us more? I'm wondering if people in churches right this moment, Yates wrote, understand this is such a vulnerable moment. And if I wonder if they realize our responsibility to stand against division and the divider. Here's my question based on everything he wrote, we, or my statement. We must withstand Satan pre, Satan's pressures to split us apart. Let me say it again in English, sorry. We must withstand Satan's pressures to split us apart. It's so easy to get torn apart, torn apart by matters that are temporary, still important, but temporary rather than eternal. Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, like learn your enemy. It's not against other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in heaven. And the focus, like the takeaway continues to be in the scriptures, to focus on Jesus instead. That might sound oversimplified, but sometimes that, that's not easy, though. That, that, that's an effort for us. That's going to take great effort, fueled by the grace of God, to say, no, Jesus over anything else. 
It doesn't mean anything else is, other things are unimportant. It just means they're a far low, below issue compared to Christ. And I'm not dismissing the fact that there are not real issues out there. While God may see us as one people, the world doesn't see it that way. And the world speaks in categories of race and of gender and of, of all these different kind of things that, that distort the scriptures all over the place. So there are things we must speak to on behalf of image bearers. But we do those as people who are driven by God's word, not the latest social media blue check mark call to action. Here's what the Hebrews writer says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all the believers who have gone before, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Think of maybe nowadays, this is a track analogy. This has been, that was kind of the main uh, sporting event back then was racing. I uh, think of uh, how nowadays, how much technology's changed for, for racing, if it's swimming, if it's track, uh, how the outfits they wear, the athletes have changed so much. You know, if you're a swimmer now, they want to make sure there's nothing that's loose, nothing that could slow them down in the water. They was very tight, you know, very designed. I mean, like high-tech designed swim outfits. They're swim caps. And track now, you see the shoes are as light as they can be. Uh, you know, you see the, the, the outfits they wear. They basically kind of wear like a glorified onesie, like an adult onesie, you know, kind of thing they wear that's really tight uh, so no wind catches in. Why? They don't want anything to slow them down. And the image Paul is giving here is throw aside anything that's going to cause you to be hindered in your race. And it's a long game. There's four quarters in a football game. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. What could it be that we need to throw off of us right now? Like, what do you need to take off in order for you to be able to run faster right now in your life, run more healthy, run unhindered for Christ? And here's the solution, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, the joy lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, consider him. Like, look there, him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so you won't grow weary and give up. He never gave up on his mission to seek and save the lost, as he said, by redeeming the people for himself. Now you, in living for Christ, yes, you're going to get weary, but don't grow weary. Don't stay there. Like, look to Christ. I need to tell you something really important, and that is that I'm not going to make light of anyone's situation in here, but the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you, and that is you were separated from God. And it's verse six set of Colossians chapter three, you were under the wrath of God for your sins. But as a Christian, that's been taken away. That doesn't mean that bad things still won't happen in this life, but the worst thing that could ever happen to you has happened and it's gone. It's now everything, even the trials you face, they all can be understood in the light of the fact that you've been raised with Christ. Your trials may last the rest of this life. I'm not some prosperity gospel preacher who's going to pretend that all your problems go away and you become a Christian. If anything, it might intensify. Why? Because there's an enemy. What I'm saying is it's worth it because he endured the cross and rose from the grave and is ruling and reigning and will forever and ever. It's really easy to live a Christianity that isn't very focused on Christ. It's really easy. Tallahassee, Florida, you ask someone if they're a Christian outside of maybe campus, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? They just mean they're not atheists and they're not Jewish. We define being a Christian by Jesus. 
what he's done, how you've responded to that. It's easy to live a Christianity that's more focused on values and culture wars and self-fulfillment or a voting block than it actually is to focus on Christ. That can change if we redirect our thoughts and our hearts and our minds and say that we are about Christ and his word and that is our mission. And that's gonna be what messes with every single area of our lives, from our politics. I mean, some of us have political opinions, I'm sure I do too, that don't line up here. They don't make sense for a Christian. We need to deal with those kind of things. Some of us are divided over matters that are earthly. And it's hurting friendships and family dynamics. It ain't gonna hurt this church. Because we're gonna be people who over and over again are stubbornly biblical people. We're not a perfect church, never will be. As long as I'm the pastor, we will not be a perfect church, I promise you. But we're gonna be people who are about this. So we believe that God has spoken to us and he's given us this word, his word. So the way that we show compassion and love and truth and grace to our neighbors is by taking the good news of the scriptures, the good news of the gospel, and being for Tallahassee, hearing the gospel, being discipled, and the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. That is what's worth our lives. And that was just what was on my heart this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the scriptures. Thankful for Colossians 3 and just the reminder to your people to pull us back to where we should have been all along. People who are under your rule, your scriptures, who believe that Jesus is far better than anything this world has to offer, that our lives are, are not going to be dictated by the latest election call, but they're gonna be dictated by you. I know there's, there's those in our own church family whose vocational lives are definitely affected by election results, and we just ask you to be with them uh, during these transitions, and Lord, just give them clarity and give them their next steps, but have them seek their minds on Christ. We pray for all of our leaders, local, state, and national. If they don't know you, that they will, that someone will be close to them, will be in the room with them, that can share the good news of the gospel, and they will yield to it, and they'll realize that we are not God, only you are. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we ask that you keep our church unified. I'm thankful that you have so far. We're grateful for that. In these days and weeks and months to come, and elections in the future, that the election we'll be the most sure of is when we have in our heavenly Father through Christ. And by the Spirit and in his name we pray. Amen.